Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by Funkinsliff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfine, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at Funkinstuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify. As always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here, Truth and Rhythm shirts, Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Emmanuel E.J. Johnson, a founding and current member of the wonderful 1970s and 80s soul vocal act, Enchantment. Hey, hey. Comprised of five singers and guided by producer Michael Stokes, the Detroit-based group enchanted listeners with several hits, including four consecutive top 15 R&B singles from 1976 to 1978. Those were Gloria, which also crossed over to reach number 25 on the pop chart. Sunshine, It's You That I Need, and If You're Ready, Here It Comes. Primarily known for their emotive ballads, Enchantment notched three straight top 25 R&B albums through 1980. The group recorded a half dozen albums in all, last charting in 1984. Since then, Johnson has continued to lead Enchantment through performances to keep warming the hearts of fans everywhere. EJ, welcome. How are you? Thank you so much, Scott. It's good to be here. Good to be talking with you. Outstanding to have you. And uh, where are you coming to us from today? Uh, my home in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, born and raised right here in Detroit. Wow, so you're quite a homebody, it sounds like. Yes, absolutely. We, uh, we, uh, you know, we do quite a bit uh, when we're not working. This is where we are, because I do other things beside uh, what I do in terms of professionalism. So it, it all takes place here. Outstanding. You know, 
I believe it or not, I've never been there. And, you know, it's such a musical mecca. I just, you know, would love to get there and, uh, and experience it. Yes, absolutely. I mean, lately, uh, we haven't, uh, uh, been able to, uh, keep our reputation up for the best of music, uh, and things like this, but we have a great history and, uh, the talent is still here. It's just a matter of, uh, what the music industry is looking for today. So as you know, we spoke offline and I let you know that I'm definitely a big fan going back to uh, those uh, glory years and Gloria years, um, <laughs> you know, and I got uh, the pleasure of seeing you guys uh, play on the show at the LA Forum back in 78 with uh, Radio and Bootsy Collins and what a great bill that was. Back in the day, yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that was that was the, the days of the mothership. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, you guys had that unique position, and we'll get more into that. But you know, you kind of straddled the line a little bit with the the hardcore soul people and some of the funk people, and you really brought it all together. Yeah, well, you know, um, even though we have exceed um, excelled in, in in mostly ballads, uh, that was a record company decision, but we were able as a group to put forth uh, great uh, funk songs as well. So we could, we could get up there and funk it out with the best of them, you know. So we fit, you know, with that kind of situation uh, very well because we could adapt ourselves to fast, funky music or the ballads. So uh, even though they pushed our ballads, we were also versatile enough to do the funk thing as well. Yeah, and I, I love that. And I think also the groups that can do that, it's some some of that somehow translates through the ballads even, you know, that it's got that extra rhythmic quality that just really hits you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to uh, try to get you to jump back a little further and uh, share with our viewers, you know, how you first got into music and, and developed your, your singing. Well... Um, if, if we're talking about the very beginning, uh, we started up in church. Uh, I was uh, a member of the little junior choir in, in church uh, in my uh, baby years, so to speak. Uh, when I uh, got serious, I think it was uh, in school, uh, uh, in music class. And uh, my music teacher was working on a song called Jacob's Ladder, which is a gospel hymn, uh, spiritual, if you will. And um, I was fooling around at the back of the class, cracking jokes and doing something I shouldn't have been doing. And he called me out and he said, Emmanuel, I want you to stand up and sing a verse of the song that we're working on. Well, my book wasn't even on the page that we were working on. And so I got kind of nervous and I said, well, what? He said, I want you to sing a verse of Jacob's Ladder, the song we were working on. And then my mind started working and said, wait a minute, Jacob's Ladder? That's the song that we sang at church. And uh, the music began to play. And I started singing, we are climbing Jacob's Ladder, Ladder, we are. Climbing Jacob's ladder, the ladder we are climbing. 
Jacob's ladder, ladder, soldier of the cross. And when I got through, all right, the class jumped up and started humming <laughs> and clapping and going off. The girls started screaming, and I'm like, "Wow, what have I done here?" And uh, the teacher said, "Okay, settle down, settle down." So he told me, he said, if you don't show up for Glee Club tomorrow morning at 7.30, I'm going to fail you. Because I know you were fooling around in the back of the class, but you can sing. So you're wasting your talent if you don't join the Glee Club. <laughs> and so I came to Glee Club that next morning, and it's been history ever since. I've been involved in glee club, choir, ensemble, boys vocal, all throughout high school and stuff like that. And that helped me get training for what I'm doing now. Wow, you know, I, we were both class clowns, except for I can't sing a note. So that's the big difference there. Wow. <laughs> I couldn't yeah. redeem it like you did. <laughs> yeah, I, I lucked up that time. He just chose the right song. Well, so, who were some of your biggest uh, singing influences? Absolutely, Stevie Wonder. Uh, him and I used to ride the bus together to uh, our separate schools back, uh, because I, I, I'm legally blind. I don't know if uh, uh, I've shared that with you, but I'm legally blind. I'm, I'm not totally blind, but uh, I'm legally blind, which means I don't see well enough to drive and get a license and things like that, but I can get around and do different things like that. So that put me in a position to uh, be in some special classes at certain times. And uh, Stevie and I used to ride the, the bus together and then he would transfer off to his school and I would go to my school. We stayed right around the corner from each other, as a matter of fact. But back then, neither one of us was uh, singing so we really didn't get a chance to share that. Uh, however, um, he was my biggest influence in my early days coming up. And people like um, Jackie Wilson, uh, going further back, if anybody knows about that, uh, Curtis Mayfield of the Impressions, and of course all of the Motown sound, that just you know, inspired me to no end. So that, made the biggest impression upon my life in terms of singing and music. Wow, Stevie Wonder, one of my all-time favorites, and uh, especially his singing, you know? Absolutely. No yeah. Doubt. You know. Um, so did you feel like, you know, growing up in that environment, it just kind of came through the your pores and just in the and the air that that was around you know the, to be so musical and to just have it course through you absolutely absolutely i i i mean i think it was a combination of both uh the gift was there uh, god gave me the gift uh, but we were in uh an era where everything was music i mean motown had just uh, burst on the scene uh, in Detroit and stuff like that during my teenage years. And uh, there was music all around. And so any day I could turn on the radio and hear all of these great songs and things like that. 
and uh, I just became a student of the music. I loved everything I heard um, between the R&B and also gospel music. You know, uh, I was uh, I started playing for my church uh, when I was 13 years old in terms of a church musician. So I've been doing that about close uh, to 50 years now, and. Um, so music has always been a, a big part of my life and uh, the surroundings uh, of Detroit, that just added to it because of the kind of uh, music mecca that Detroit was. I mean, it just, you know, it was all through me and that's what I love to do. Did, did you have any, uh, you know, uh, piano lessons and things like that or what kind of formalized musical training? I had... I, I didn't have, they tried to give me piano lessons, uh, but um, my piano teacher kicked me out because he said I was doing everything wrong. My finger positions were wrong. He would show me, but then I would play it my way, and I, I found a way to play it my way, and uh, um, I, uh, you know, I accomplished the same thing, but my technique was all wrong, and so he couldn't stand that. He told me, he said, just keep on, um, you know, doing what you're doing, but you're not doing it correctly. There's nothing else I can do for you. So that was, you know. Um, I was, however, able to redeem myself later on in life because I was able to get piano lessons for my son, and he is an absolute virtuoso with it. So. We got it in the family anyway, somehow. Nice. And uh, speaking of your son, I just want to thank him for helping us set this up. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, EJ, do you remember what your first experience was being on stage and singing in front of people? And, you know, how did that go? Um, well, we I kind of started personally in church. Uh, with the gospel music, that kind of helps you prepare for things later on, and it actually helped me prepare for uh, things like that uh, because I was singing in church, and you get a good uh, uh, rehearsal, so to speak, of how you're going to be later on and what you're going to be doing later on by singing in church because they make you get up in front of the audience and you do what you do. But in terms of um, actually singing and things like that on stage. We, uh, it was mostly with my group and we were early teens, like I said, and it was a little nerve wracking in the beginning. We were all nervous, but something happens to me when I start singing and I finally get on stage, I open up and I lose those nerves and uh, I start to feel what I'm doing and uh, I'm okay once I get started. I have a nervous feeling in the beginning. But once I get started, I'm ready to go. And so how did Enchantment form? Was it a, a different name, a different group originally, or how did it come together? No, I was, um, I was a soloist around high school um, singing talent shows uh, at Pershing High School here in Detroit, Michigan, back in the uh, late 60s. And... Um, I was singing at uh, talent shows, and, and one day, uh, one of our members, uh, David Banks, uh, walked up to me and uh, uh, asked me, was I interested in singing with a group? And 
I said, well, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I've never stayed with the group, but uh, I wouldn't mind. And he told me that Barry Gordy was his uncle. And I said, what? <laughs> and that kind of got me excited. I said, yeah, I would love to, uh, you know, get with you guys. Well, that ended up being untrue. <laughs> but <laughs> we went over there and I rehearsed with the guys. And after we were together for a while, we developed the rapport. And uh, we loved what we were doing. And we continued on from there. And the name was Enchantment at that point? We uh, uh, originally called ourselves The Enchantments because everything was the, you know, the or whatever. Um, but when we looked at that grammatically, it didn't make a lot of sense. It didn't make uh, a, a good sense as far as English was concerned. So we looked at the word enchantment. And uh, we uh, love the meaning uh, to delight, to amaze. And that's what we wanted to do to our audience, really cast a spell on them. And uh, we took the S off and we took off the V and we became Enchantment. And how much, you know, performing and rehearsing and all that did you do before you got a record deal? We were together. Well, we actually went into the studio in 1968 and recorded a little local song here in Detroit called uh, Your Love Was So Wonderful or something like that. Uh, it was never really released to, the, to uh, the degree that it was played on the radio or anything. Uh, so we got close with that one, but basically we got our first record played on the radio in 1975. And so we had been together about eight years uh, doing little shows around town and things like that and uh, just tightening up our craft, you know, and that's what we did. We uh, had a lot of experience doing shows, free shows, of course, <laughs> wasn't any pay, but we wanted to show the public what we could do and that's what happened. Well, so for myself and a lot of fans and listeners, what seems sort of like an overnight sensation was a long time in the making, which a lot of times turns out to be the case. Yes, yes, yes. It's uh, it's never uh, an overnight sensation. Uh, the overnight sensation takes uh, eight, nine, ten years sometimes. In our case, it was close to ten years. I think it was 1973 before we really... Um, got a chance to actually start getting serious about it and uh, uh, recording. Uh, that was when we met our producer to be Michael Stokes and uh, uh, that uh, led off uh, the enchantment situation. We did a movie score in 1975 called Deliver Us From Evil and uh, we did four songs on that little compilation um, and then Later on in 76, we did our first uh, national album entitled Enchantment. How did you get in contact with Michael Stokes? Do you remember? Uh, through local situations, one of us, uh, one of the guys knew his wife. Uh, uh, she did fashion shows around the city and we were like the vocal talent for some of her shows 
and it just so happened that uh, uh, her husband Michael uh, was a producer and he he came and saw us at one of the shows and it started from there and then we hooked up and moved on and what what were your uh, yours and the other guys in the group like aspirations you know did you see yourselves being like another Temptations or Dramatics or, or what were you thinking well um, we yeah we wanted to be uh, like uh, the Temptations not in style but in success uh, uh, of course the Temptations were the standard uh, uh, especially around Detroit uh, because you know they were uh, out of Detroit here uh, so everybody was, uh, you know, uh, on that situation, but we never wanted to be that way in terms of our style. Uh, Enchantment always had a style of their own, and we always had a sound of our own. So uh, they were our inspiration, but we we basically wanted to be successful and uh, create music that people would remember and. Uh, you know, hopefully it would in, in, endure us to them because we believed in doing timeless music. And Michael Stokes, was he part of that? I know you got uh, hooked up with Roadshow uh, Management, I think, and they also did BT Express and Brass Construction. Yeah, he, he, he introduced us to uh, uh, Roadshow Records corporation and they ended up being uh, the first uh, label that uh, recorded us and we did uh, we did our first uh, uh, three four albums with them yes so EJ what do you remember about going to the st studio um, I mean I guess you already did it on that soundtrack you mentioned uh, but specifically going in for that first album, what do you remember about the sessions? Was it just exciting? Was it challenging? What? Yeah, we, uh, we, I mean, we just, we just loved what we were doing because we were anticipating success. Uh, and so I was, I was in a different kind of position because I was in a position where I was the writer of most of the songs. So what I would do is I would write uh, I would write the songs and and put some of the music to the different things and then I would take that that uh, uh, presentation to Michael and then he would in turn uh, get the musicians and then we would go in the studio and you know make it professional whatever. So as we were doing it I mean we we loved what we were doing. We were in the studio sometimes from 12 to 12 or from 3 to 3 uh, we wouldn't stop until we got it right so we loved it it was exciting and uh, it was part of the work that we knew we had to put in and so we did it we we put in the work and uh, however long it took that's what we had to do what, what were some of the inspirations you were drawing on for those songs all of the um, all of the people, of course, that have come before us, all of the other great singers and uh, uh, styles that we had listened to, uh, and then experience, life experience uh, with uh, our first uh, 
big single, Gloria, that was a, a personal experience of my life. And so I drew upon that experience to write that song. And uh, in the midst of that, so many people were drawn to that because they could relate to the situation in terms of uh, uh, the romantic side, uh, uh, being in love, what have you. And so um, this is why we always wanted to try to keep our music in that vein so that people could relate to it. And uh, that, that makes it uh, your music live on because people can always relate to it. And, uh, you know, when people can relate to it, then it becomes a part of them and it uh, it keeps you around for a while. Yeah, well, there's no doubt it's proven to be timeless because here we are many decades later still talking about it and, and so many people still love these songs. And that first album was actually, we we're talking about the outset, but it was actually more up-tempo than ballads, but it was the ballads that really uh, hit it on the charts. Yeah, uh, our first single was uh, entitled Come On and Ride. It was a disco. Uh, we were capitalizing on the disco era. And um, uh, uh, it was called Disco Express Come On and Ride. So we were talking about uh, a, a train uh, a riding uh, all over the world full of love, you know. And um, that's where we came from at first. And it, it, it caught on, but I don't think the company really wanted to push it uh, 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 in its entirety. I think they were waiting on a good, strong ballot to get behind. So Gloria was next. And uh, when that happened, it just just exploded. In the midst of all of the disco era and all that, here comes this sleepy little ballot that just explodes in the middle of all of that and changed the whole industry because at that particular time, there were not a lot of ballads that were on the charts, so to speak. And so it was something that was meant to be. I mean, uh, God was in the picture there and uh, meant for Gloria to be as big as it was. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I remember listening to radio then and, uh, you know, all the up-tempo stuff like you're saying, and then all of a sudden that comes on and it's just like, whoa, what is that? You know, and really yeah, got attention. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, and that album also had Sunshine, so you had two huge hits on there. Um, yeah. The strange thing about Sunshine is that Sunshine is actually Gloria revisited. And, and, and what I mean by that is some months later, after uh, that relationship was over with, uh, I ran into her somewhere out on the street, what have you, and we kind of exchanged our situations and, you know, I was saying that, you know, it's good to see you and you're looking good and all of that other thing. But then I found out through that conversation that I was still in love and I started talking about my situation. and. I was letting her know that it wasn't over with with my heart, with me. And that was that story. So it was the same story, just revisited. 
Well, it's beautiful that you can not only open yourself up to those emotions in the songwriting, but also just convey it like it was conveyed musically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and on that album, I mean, I really like some of the up-tempo stuff too, like um, Dance to the Music was real soulful funk, and yes. uh, Sexy Lady was, you know, funky soul of the highest order. Yeah, we always, um, uh, we always had a balance. I think that it was our... Um, record company, uh, which eventually ends up uh, with the radio stations and different people. They, you know, they get used to a certain thing, and uh, sometimes it can be good for you. Sometimes it can be bad for you. But it puts you in a situation that where they don't want to open up uh, to any other uh, kinds of, of music from you because one is so dominant. Mm -hmm. And that's the way it was with our ballots. I mean, it, it, it was just no contest. We just, bam, it, 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 it exploded. And uh, it put us in a category that, uh, it, it, it's a great category because we uh, are known for that. So we are happy about it. Uh, but I love up-tempo music as well. And you had some uh, great players on there too. Chuck Rainey playing some bass and, and Stokes doing a lot of the music. Yes, yes, yes. I played keyboards on uh, on most of those uh, albums as well. Um, we, uh, because in the beginning, before we got to the professional part with the musicians, I took my local band, myself and Michael Stokes, and we would, we would go in the studio and we put down the demos. This is how we got approved for our record deal. Uh, in the very beginning, because we submitted the demos to Roadshow Records, and in that, I would uh, I would go in, I would play the keyboards on some of the things. Um, uh, then we'd have our own uh, musicians, and um, I would sing the parts down and stuff like that. We submitted that to the record company, and then they decided to give us the contract. And that's where the whole recording contract took place. That's how we got our deal. Very, very interesting. Thanks for sharing that, EJ. Um, so you guys went back in and you, and you came back with your you know sophomore album, Once Upon a Dream, which was at least as big, if not bigger. Um, oh, yeah. What what did you learn or change you know going into that project? Well. Um, I think in that uh, second album, we they were trying to uh, take us in the pop direction. Um, I don't know if it worked because it went it came right back around to um, the things that we were best at. Uh, I wrote a song on that album called. Uh, Silly Love Song, and I also wrote another song called Trying to Get Over With You. Those were heartfelt ballads, and, and uh, they were the songs that sold that album. And as a matter of fact, that, that album went gold uh, for us. And uh, between those two songs and It's You That I Need, uh, and If You're Ready, of course, but it was those ballads that really propelled that album and made it what it was. So that album went gold for us. 
Yeah, I mean, you just mentioned such great classics there. Those two ballads, phenomenal. Uh, it's You That I Need, just what a great hit song. And and the up-tempo one, you know, If You're Ready. Um, if You're Ready, yes. Really, really catchy uh, yeah. funk soul. And what they would do, they would, uh, back then, you know, radio was different. Uh, they would they would get into albums, and that's, that's what, what really... Uh, uh, sold your uh, album project, they would play album cuts. And they were starting to play songs like off that album, Silly Love Song, and, and Trying to Get Over With You. And uh, with that, it led up to people recording those songs later on that were not even singles. But that's how important album cuts were at that particular time. Uh, that song, Silly Love Song, has been recorded uh, and sampled so many times uh, in today's music now until uh, uh, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, we, we had it recorded, uh, we had it remade by uh, Michelle A. of the Dr. Dre camp uh, on a uh, triple platinum album. Uh, also, uh, Rick Ross, the rapper, he did a version of Silly Love Song where he sampled uh, our songs as well, so we've had a lot of success with that. So those those are the things that, that helped us because they they started playing our album cuts, and that exposed uh, us to a lot of different people, and people heard them that way. That's great. I mean, I always say, you know, the great songs they endure. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They find their way. And that album just closes with such a killer, you know, like suite of ballads. Um, the one you didn't mention is Angel My Life, but that's a real dramatic ballad, too. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, that's what we were, you know, that, that, that was our thing. You know, we, 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 we could lay down a ballad. So, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that was our strong suit. Absolutely, no doubt about that. So at this point, EJ, um, you know, you were... As I mentioned at the outset, you were doing these some of these big tours. Who were some of the other, uh, you know, acts that you were going out there with, and what were you trying to project in your live performances? Well, um, we traveled with everybody. Uh, all of the big, mostly we were we, we were mostly working with bands back then. Uh, uh, Graham Central Station with Larry Graham. Uh, Bootsy's Rubber Band, uh, Parliament Funkadelic, um, um, uh, Natalie Cole, Peebo Bryson, uh, Frankie Beverly and Mays, uh, War. Uh, we toured with War and um, Mays and people like that uh, for about two years. Um, we were, you know, we were out there with all of the, mostly the big bands at that time because that, that's what was happening. There was a, a, a big influence of bands on the scene there. And so we were uh, out there with them and, and we, 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 we were right in there. We held our own. I mean, you know, we came out, we could get funky with them as well. You know, it wasn't like we came out with, you know, our little ballads and then we went home. We got out there and we, Hey, we, we laid down the funk thing uh, along with the rest of them, and it was a good mixture because we could not only do the funk thing, but we could also slow it down and bring a beautiful ballad as well. So we, we had a point to prove, and uh, 
uh, it, it was well documented. We were out there, and uh, it was very. All of those tours were very successful. And you guys were, you know, wearing uh, matching, you know, outfits and costumes and things. And how much uh, work did you do on choreography and things like that? Well, we had our whole situation with Enchantment was all in-house. Uh, each member of the group uh, was responsible for a uh, different situation. Uh, I was the uh, vocal man and music arranger and, and writer and things like that. I arranged our show and what songs we were going to do for the show. Uh, one guy would uh, uh, pick up the uh, wardrobe in terms of what we would uh, wear on stage. Uh, we had two of our guys uh, who were taking care of the choreography and uh, would uh, literally make up the dance steps that we did. And so everybody had their own particular part to play to uh, pull this thing together. So it was all like a puzzle. And we, everybody did their thing and uh, we all came together like that. That's how it came together. 